the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome today, Chris Carrier. Chris is a PA who works in orthopedics specializing in hand surgery. Chris also creates content for our event apps at our conferences, and he helps conference attendees navigate the app. Thanks for being here today, Chris. Yeah, sure. Today's podcast will be based on your talk at our recent orthopedic boot camp titled Hand Injuries Not to Miss. During this talk, you presented several case studies, and that will be the subject for our podcast. Welcome today, Chris. Great. Thanks for having me. In your first case study, you had a patient that was seen in the emergency department complaining of hand pain. You also said that this patient had a humerus fracture, and that was the preoccupation by the ER staff. Was this one that you said there was a lot of focus on the humerus and the hand was overlooked? Yeah, so we had a 53-year-old guy who was in a motorcycle accident, and he got admitted to our trauma service, and they had found that he had a proximal humerus fracture, but they had kind of been distracted by whatever else he had going on, and they never fully evaluated his complaint about his right hand hurting. So I think it's sort of a great example where we talk about doing a secondary survey and making sure that you address all these things. Sometimes it doesn't all work out at the initial time you meet somebody, but we were able to kind of catch up on things over the, the next couple of days. A very important point for our listeners here is to make sure you always at least take a look at something when someone's complaining about pain, even after a high injury trauma and an obvious other injury. So the trauma was a long finger middle phalanx pylon fracture or a pylon fracture, depending on who taught you how to say pylon. Can you please describe, Chris, for audience, what is a uh, middle phalanx pylon fracture and why it's a big problem if not addressed and treated properly? And what are the treatments for this type of injury? Do you splint it or does it need surgery? Please talk about the pearls you discussed when you see these. He wound up having a dislocation of his DIP joint, and he had this pilon fracture, which is a pretty comminuted fracture on the joint surface at the base of the middle phalanx. So right at the PIP joint, they wind up getting this fracture. It's an important fracture for us to look out for because if we don't find it soon enough and treat it appropriately, they wind up getting some pretty bad arthritis in that joint that may leave their finger not very useful for the rest of their life. So especially for a young guy at 53, he's probably got a fair bit of life to live as long as he doesn't keep wrecking his motorcycle. In his case, it was just important that we find it. And so the treatments for this really depend on what they have going on, what time frame you're seeing them in. And so we generally try to do a closed reduction as soon as we see this. And so I numbed him up on the floor and put the end of his finger back where it was supposed to be and then kind of splinted him. And so we generally will splint these guys with their finger bent and a little bit of flexion because that helps to reduce that fracture at the PIP joint. And so overall treatments for this really depend on how stable that joint is after you've done that initial reduction. And so when I think about kind of what we do, you splint them right off the bat, almost regardless of what they have going on. In this guy's particular case, I ordered a CAT scan so that I could really see the amount of joint involvement. And then when we think about all the different treatment options, there are loads of them, which 
in orthopedics generally means that there's not any one really good option, but we have lots of different ways of putting pieces back together. So for this particular fracture, we can put them in a splint that blocks their ability to get their fingers straight that we would call a dorsal blocking splint. And after that, it's all surgical stuff. So we can try to tie the pieces together with a surplage wire or stitch. Sometimes we can directly fix the broken piece or pieces with some really tiny screws. Sometimes we take out the broken piece if it's small enough and we can advance one of the ligaments on the palm side of that PIP joint called a volar plate arthroplasty or volar plate advancement. Sometimes we have arts and crafts time in the OR and we can put them in what's called a Suzuki dynamic external fixator which uses some pins and dental rubber bands so that we can let them start moving, but keep the joint distracted so that it stays lined up in a pretty reasonable state. And then if those are all not great options, there's another surgery called a hemihemate autograft because somebody figured out that we can take half of a wrist bone and transplant it to the base of a finger and have everything line up pretty well. And so we really just try to base which we do on the way that that fracture presents. Uh, that particular fellow that I saw in the hospital wound up getting a dynamic external fixator. So that stays on for about a month. And then we can usually pull the pins out in the operating room and let him get working on moving and doing stuff after that. So when I think about pearls, I think that the key for that one is you know diagnosing that that's a problem. And so one of the classic signs we see on a, on a lateral x-ray is they have this thing called a V sign where they have a break at that joint and the middle phalanx starts to drift off the back of that knuckle. And so they get this sort of V that you shouldn't normally see. So the lateral x-ray V sign is sort of one of the big pearls for finding that fracture. And we generally say reduce it if you're able to reduce it, get it lined up better, put them in a dorsal blocking splint because that'll usually keep it from skipping off the back again. And then I generally CT those so that we know exactly how big the pieces are and it, and it helps us figure out if it's something if we can fix or if we have to come up with one of the other treatment options that we have. Okay, for the second case, the study was a Seymour fracture on a finger versus a car door. And I have to tell you, I've seen many of those injuries in urgent care. Not many Seymour fractures, but I've very common nail bed injuries. So, Chris, what is a Seymour fracture? What do you expect to find on an x-ray with these injuries, and what is the treatment? What are the pearls for our listeners regarding Seymour fractures? Great question. So, a Seymour fracture is just a specifically named fracture. That means that there's a break in the growth plate of the distal phalanx that comes along with the nail plate trying to come out from under the skin. And it also typically implies that there's some kind of injury to the nail bed or the pink part underneath the nail that the nail grows over. So it's a fracture that only happens in kids. It tends to happen a lot when people or when kids get their fingers slammed in car doors. I think that's probably the most common thing that we see. Um, on x-ray, sometimes this can be pretty subtle and we might only see a little bit of widening of the growth plate, which might be our only tip off. But if we see that nail trying to peek out from the skin at its base, in addition to that widened growth plate, sometimes it's a completely displaced growth plate fracture. Um, that's what we would sort of expect to see. And so the treatment is we just try to line all the pieces up and put back on the inside what belongs on the inside. So generally, we try to find these fractures. 
when they're early on because it's much easier to get it lined back up. We we basically line the bone back up the way that it needs to be. We'll put a pin right down the end of the finger that can stay in there for between four and six weeks to allow for good healing of the bone. And once we have the bone lined up, then we'll address the injury to the nail bed itself and kind of get the skin to be back on top of the nail instead of the nail sitting on top of the skin. So the tricky part with these is that sometimes they're missed or they wind up presenting late because you know they're evaluated in an outside facility who says, oh, they just smashed their finger in a car door. Not quite a big deal, but if we're finding these late, it's much harder to get the broken part lined up the way that it's supposed to be. So we try to be pretty vigilant about finding those and they're fairly easy to treat as long as you can make the correct diagnosis. So, you know, as far as pearls for that go, we generally say it's a nail plate avulsion where the nail plate has been ripped out from under the skin with a nail bed injury and this fracture of the distal phalanx in a patient that has an open growth plate. And so typically the nail is sitting on top of the skin instead of underneath the skin. And then we look at an x-ray, see that they have this displaced fracture. And then we go and do the things to line everything up. If we don't do that, then we run the risk of having some kind of infection in the bone because it was an open fracture that didn't get treated or just the potential for growth problems as a result of having that fracture and having that growth plate disturbed and never having that righted. Okay, so the next case study is a FUSH with a right wrist injury and perilunate dislocation. For those that don't know, a FUSH stands for a fall on outstretched hand. I think I've seen two of these types of injuries in 25 years, but I don't work with a hand specialist. Please tell our listeners about perilunate injuries and lunate dislocations. Why are they so easily missed on plain films? What is the typical treatment for this injury? And what pearls of knowledge from lunate injuries can you pass on to our listeners? Perilunate injuries are probably one of the more traumatic things that we see in hand surgery. It can be a pretty devastating injury. And we usually tell folks that your wrist will never be the same after this happens. This is another one that tends to be easily missed. And I've seen these missed by guys that had loads of experience in orthopedics, just maybe not in wrist and hand type things. I've seen these things missed by musculoskeletally trained radiologists who call their x-ray normal. But Basically, there's this whole continuum of injury, and, and it can present in a couple different patterns, but there's a lot of force that goes through the wrist during that fall. Sometimes the wrist will just break. In this particular situation, all the ligaments around the lunate bone essentially get torn, and most of the wrist bones are allowed to dislocate away from where they're supposed to be while the lunate tends to sit on the distal radius where it belongs. So there are you know, a couple different patterns. Some are just a straight perilunate dislocation. Sometimes there's a fracture with a scaphoid, where we call it a transscaphoid perilunate dislocation because we're not generally clever about how we name things. Um, and there's another kind where the force goes through the styloid process of the radius, and then the ligament injury occurs with a lunate dislocation. So we call that a transstyloid perilunate dislocation. They can be pretty tricky to miss on a regular x-ray because if you're not noticing that the bones are not perfectly lined up, all the bones look like they're there. And so sometimes it's easy for folks to miss. Sometimes there are some pretty easy ways to look. And, and if the gaps between the bones don't look pretty uniform on the x-ray, that's a big tip off. 
a lot of times, especially on a lateral x-ray, we can see that lunate bone sitting by itself on the radius. We call it the spilled teacup or empty teacup sign. The, the capitate, which should normally be sitting on top of the lunate, has dislocated off the back of the lunate. So the lunate is just sitting there all by itself, looking like a cup of tea that's been tipped over. Typically, the treatment for that is we try to get an urgent reduction because when that particular perilunate situation is going on, there's usually a lot of pressure on the median nerve, which is running right across those bones on the palm side of the wrist. So we try to get the bones lined up back on top where they belong, which usually involves some sort of sedation and or long time in traction. And then once that's been reduced, we splint them, typically in a sugar tongue splint, but it's an inherently unstable injury because in order to get all those bones to dislocate, you had to have torn apart all the ligament connections between all the bones. And so just putting them back, they're not necessarily gonna be super stable. So it, there's generally some kind of fixation that has to go into this. And there's often a combination of screws and or pins where we can line everything up and just hold all the stuff together for a long, long time so that it can start to heal. And so you know, for the patient in that particular case study, she had fallen down some stairs, I think, and she had this perilunate dislocation. We wound up taking her to the OR, reduced everything, fixed all the ligaments. So we did a direct repair of all the ligaments. That should help with the stability and help everything tighten up. And then she was actually the transscaphoid variant of this particular injury. So we put a screw in the scaphoid. Because of the amount of trauma and the amount of swelling that goes with it, we expect that she may have some carpal tunnel symptoms. And so while we were there, we did a carpal tunnel release because that would help take some of the pressure off of the median nerve before it has a chance to become problematic. And then basically pinned all the rest of the stuff together. And then eventually you take the pins out and let everything start moving. But we intentionally allow those folks to get super stiff because it was a an injury that made the wrist joint unstable. If they wind up getting stiff, they wind up being stable. And so we work on getting their motion back. She ultimately wound up doing really well. So, you know, as far as pearls for these things, recognition, I think, is the number one key. And that empty teacup or spilled teacup sign on a lateral view is sort of pathognomonic for the perilunate injury. We can also look and see on some of the other x-rays if the gaps between the bones or if the arcs or what we would call galula's lines don't line up. That's also a pretty good indicator that there's something weird going on in there. Uh, other pearls, prompt reduction is, is sort of the mainstay of treatment, but then they should also be fixed because they're generally an unstable injury even after reduction. And so again, this is one that we try not to miss because a late presentation is super hard to be able to get reduced and get everything kind of lined back up appropriately. And so we try to get that done sooner rather than later. So important not to miss. Listeners, I've been chatting with Chris Carrier, a PA who specializes in hand surgery. Chris, thanks again for being on our podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. On behalf of the PAOS Board of Directors, we would like to tell you all happy Thanksgiving. I hope you were able to spend some quality time with your friends and family. I also want to ask for your support on Giving Tuesday after the Thanksgiving holiday. Your support helps us fund our scholarship program and our charitable work. Please consider a donation. You can find the link on the paos.org website. Thanks and happy Thanksgiving to you all.